0: Sunday, from me to you. My name's Dave, one of the pastors here, and we're almost to the finishing uh, moments of the Gospel of Matthew in our series, His Kingdom Come, and uh, today's passage is in Matthew chapter 26. And let me begin the message with a question. How much does it cost? How much does it cost? That was the question that the Mayan tribal peoples in Mexico asked missionary Mariana Slocum in 1965. See, they were standing in line to get a copy of the New Testament in their own language for the very first time, and they simply came to the front of the line and asked that question. How much does it cost? Of course, she knew that they were asking, you know, how much do we need to pay for this Bible? But in a moment of transcendence, she thought about that question a little bit more deeply. How much did this Bible really cost Her. In 1941, a couple of decades earlier, she had given up the pursuit of getting married and having a family to serve the Lord on the mission field full time. There was also the cost of loneliness, illness, unfriendliness, and primitive living conditions for her entire life. All of that made up the cost to give them this New Testament in their own language so that they could understand it for the first time. Prior to this, she had already worked for 15 years on her first translation of the Bible for a different tribe. Then she moved to this particular tribe and had been working eight years before her translation work was finished. Two translations in just over two decades, not bad for a single woman from Philadelphia. But all of that came at a high price. What is the cost of following the Lord Jesus? What exactly is demanded of us, and why is it so difficult to surrender to him? Rich Mullins, Christian artist, wrote it wrote a song with these words Surrender don't come natural to me. I'd rather fight you for something I don't really want than to take what you give that I need. And now I've beat my head against so many walls, I'm falling down. I'm falling on my knees. A lot of us, I think, can relate to that sentiment. We find it very, very difficult to surrender. We find it difficult to sacrifice and and difficult to really embrace the cost of following the Lord Jesus Christ. But why is that? And how can we learn to be more open-handed? That's actually what the passage is about today. Here in the Gospel of Matthew, we have a record of an extravagant sacrifice, and we're going to see characteristics of sacrifices that are honoring to the Lord Join me in Matthew 26. The context here is uh, the last week of Jesus' life. The gospel is coming to a close. Tension has been building. The passion is coming. Uh, Inky black clouds are on the horizon. Tragedy is so close you can taste it. Betrayal is being plotted and awaits in the near future. But embedded right in the middle of all of that evil scheming, like a diamond in the rough... Is this story of a beautiful sacrifice. We pick up the text in chapter 26 and verse 3. Then the chief priests and the elders of the people assembled in the palace of the high priest, whose name was Caiaphas. And they schemed to arrest Jesus secretly and kill him. The setting for this first scene is a room in the temple complex somewhere. There's a secret meeting in the palace, some sort of official gathering of chief priests and elders. What was the meeting like? Picture a dimly lit room, candles flickering, pompous men in robes swishing around, discussing how to get rid of this troublemaking rabbi. The leaders are no doubt agitated by Jesus' confrontation with them. Remember all of those woes he pronounced on them in chapter 23? That was just a few days prior. He is threatening their stability, and so they don't like him. The only problem is they know that Jesus is very popular with the crowd, and so they find themselves caught between a rock and a hard place. Verse 5. But not during the festival, they said. Or they may be, there may be a riot among the people. Did you see that ridiculous parade of stupid Galileans here last Sunday, rousing the poor rabble? A carpenter from Nazareth coming into our city like a king on a jackass, everybody shouting and crying, Hosanna, what a mess! This is getting absolutely out of control. We must put a stop to this soon. But our hands are tied. If we do it now, there's going to be an uprising. See, during the Passover, lots and lots of visitors were in town. Picture a chaotic environment like Mardi Gras. A crowd this size was particularly nerve-wracking to those who were uh, in charge. And so here they're plotting and scheming, thinking, well, what can we do, though? There's got to be something we can do. And then right at that moment, uh, Matthew, like the director of a movie, yells, cut! And the scene shifts. We've seen these Matthew sandwich stories before. Remember, uh, Matthew will start one story, break it off in midstream, and then start another story, finish that, and then return to the first story later. It's kind of like a burger. Two buns and a beef patty. The purpose for this technique is to draw out a contrast. The scene shifts here, and while that secret meeting was taking place with the leaders... Here's what was going on with Jesus. Meanwhile, while Jesus was in Bethany in the home of Simon the leper, while those elite religious leaders are meeting in their luxurious temple like royalty, meanwhile Jesus is hanging out with the social outcasts at an unclean house of an unclean man, Simon the leper. It's like the difference between a business meeting at a hotel conference room with whiteboards and flip charts and bottled waters and a ragtag gathering of thugs and crack addicts in the ghetto. Which meeting would we expect the Son of God to be attending? Which meeting contains his friends and those loyal to the Messiah? It's not the meeting you'd think. So while he's in Bethany at the home of Simon the leper, it says, then a woman came to him with an alabaster jar of very expensive perfume. So we have a woman introduced. Who was she? We don't know. She's anonymous. What was she doing here? We're not sure. Has she been invited? Probably not. If she was invited, she's very late as the guests are well into the meal at this point. It simply says a woman came and she came with something very precious. Matthew says it's an alabaster jar, of very expensive perfume. The Gospel of Mark says it was pure nard. That was a fragrant oil made from a very rare herb grown in the high pasture lands of China, Tibet, and India. There's no way for it to find its way to Bethany unless it was carried on camels from very far away. And so this was a very, very rare and valuable treasure. Ladies, this was the best stuff money could buy. This was the favorite, highly valued, beloved, cherished perfume. This was not a cheap little bottle from Macy's. Uh, This was not even made by Sephora or Ulta. This was the best of the best. Now, I know nothing about perfume, but I did look up expensive perfumes this week, and I found this one. Neiman Marcus makes this particular brand of perfume, and you can get a bottle for the low, low price of $1,800. Whoa. That actually doesn't even come close to what she has brought to the Lord. In another place, we're told it could have been sold for 300 denarii, 300 denarii was the income of the average day laborer for an entire year. In other words, this jar would have been worth a whole year of her income. Just think about that for a moment. This is no ordinary gift. This was the best stuff you could get. Let me be clear. This is not, I'll give God what's left over right after I buy my new iPad, 4K TV, and I remodel my kitchen. Uh, this is not, oh, here's a dollar for the fireman, roll down your window, let's put something in his boot. This is not, hey, I have some change in the, in the little tray in my car, let me throw that in the baby bottle for the campaign they're doing at church. No, no, this was not a gimmick or a tax write-off. This, this was an extravagant, dear, prized, treasured possession that she brought to the Lord Jesus. Amen. And then, After she brought this jar, it says, she poured the whole thing on his head while he was reclining at the table. Oh my goodness. Would you look at that? Picture the scene. Uh, You're sitting around, you're having a good meal. After dinner, you're talking, and then all of a sudden you hear a smash. She breaks this jar and then pours the whole thing out onto the Lord Jesus' head, and glub, 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 the whole thing is there, and instantly the room is filled with that beautiful smell, that aroma. Whoa. The jar is destroyed. It's all poured out. It's gone. A whole year's pay, gone, with one gesture, forever. She'll never get it back. This brings us to point number one about sacrifices that we bring to the Lord. When we bring sacrifices, we must remember that beautiful sacrifices are costly. Can we say that together, church? Beautiful sacrifices are costly. This gift was generous, lavish, liberal, open-handed, overflowing, and plentiful. And she poured it all out for the Lord Jesus So often we don't think like this when we give to the Lord. Paul Harvey told a story a few years ago about the Butterball Turkey Company, who set up a hotline to answer questions about their Easter turkeys. A woman called in to inquire about cooking a turkey that had been in her freezer for an amazing 23 years. (laughs) The man on the other end of the line said, Ma'am, It might be safe if your freezer has been kept at the right temperature for this entire time. However, even if it were safe, the flavor has probably deteriorated, and we wouldn't recommend eating that. And she said, oh, that's what I thought. I'll just give it to the church. (laughs) So often when it comes to the Lord Jesus, we give him our leftovers. When I'm taken care of, then and only then, if there's anything left, then I'll contribute to the Lord's work. I protect my resources. Me first. Pastor Francis Chan writes about this in his book, Crazy Love. He was referring to a passage in Malachi where the people of Israel were offering to God these sick and injured animals as their sacrifices. And Chan says, God wants our best. Deserves our best and demands our best. From the beginning of time, he has been clear that some offerings are acceptable to him and others are not. Just ask Cain. Chan goes on to say, For years I gave God leftovers and felt no shame. I simply took my eyes off Scripture and instead compared myself to others. The bones I threw at God had more meat on them than the bones others threw, so I figured I was doing fine. A mumbled three-minute prayer at the end of the day when we were already half asleep Uh, Two crumpled up dollar bills thrown as an afterthought into the church's fund for the poor. Fetch, God. But leftovers, he says, are not merely inadequate from God's point of view. They're evil. Let's stop calling it a busy schedule or bills or forgetfulness. It's called evil. It's evil because it doesn't esteem God's worth and glory for all he is. It's evil because it puts myself at the top and I elevate my throne above the throne of God and someone very evil once thought that way one time. King David one time was gonna give a field to the Lord and because he was king, someone offered to just give him the field for free because that's what you do with the king, right? But you remember David's response? David said, no, 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 <laughs> no, I will not. Offer to the Lord that which costs me nothing. That's what this woman understood. She understood that sacrifice that counts is sacrifice that costs. Sacrifice that counts is sacrifice that costs. Is there anywhere in your life where you're not really offering your best to God? Is there anywhere in your life where you're offering Him your 20-year-old freezer-burnt turkey? What would it look like to step up your game a little bit? Beautiful sacrifices are costly. Movement two. So we're going to move on. And uh, in light of this cost, it's not surprising that those who were at the gathering uh, had kind of a shocked and, um, you know, nasty response. And this provoked some, some argumentation in the room. So take a look at verse eight. When the disciples saw this, they were indignant. Why this waste? they asked. This perfume could have been sold at a high price and the money given to the poor. Why the waste? What have you done destroying this expensive bottle of perfume? What a shame. Literally, it reads, to what purpose this destruction? Why would you take something so costly and just pour it out? Mark says that at this point, they rebuked her harshly. They're so upset. They're ranting and raving about this this gift. You ignorant woman it's too much, a little oil, a little perfume, okay, fine, the whole jar. Don't you know we're part of a new movement here? If you're looking for somewhere to make a donation, give it to us. We need cash. We're saving our money. we got to buy iPads and cameras and lights and projectors and flat screen TVs and projectors and printers and staplers and stuff. You're throwing it all away. We could have told you what to do. Good grief. Incidentally, if you offer a beautiful sacrifice to the Lord, please do not be surprised if it is criticized, because beautiful sacrifices are criticized. Can we say that together? Beautiful sacrifices are criticized. If you give to the Lord, some people will not understand. Why are you spending all your time at the church why are you spending all your time serving in that ministry? You're going to go on, on a mission trip to Senegal? You're going to take a week off of work? Take a vacation. Why are you giving to the Lord? That's a waste. Don't spend your time at church like that. Nobody appreciates what you're doing anyway. Don't waste yourself on the things of the Lord. Spend your resources on yourself. That's what you need to do. You need some me time. I remember listening to a non-Christian couple uh, go back and forth with the christian couple about their commitment to church on sunday mornings. And the non-christian couple was like, "You mean you go to church like every sunday?" And they go, "Yeah." And they respond, "Well, doesn't that kind of cut into your weekend?" <laughs> yeah. I, that's kind of the never mind. I remember when I first decided to go to Bible college and and resign from my job in in hotel and restaurant management, and my my boss was asking me, because he couldn't figure out my reasoning, and he wasn't a Christian, so he didn't really get it. He's like, okay, so you're going to go get a master's degree for that many years, man, and it's not going to increase your income? Why would you do that? (laughs) Waste, waste. Don't make those sacrifices for the Lord. But here's the thing. Everybody makes sacrifices. The question is not if you'll make a sacrifice. We all are sacrificing to someone or something. It's a default posture of the human heart. The question is, is what I'm sacrificing to worthy of my sacrifice? That's the question. Alan Redpath, well-known British evangelist of the last century, said it this way, Our God is the thing or person which we think most precious, for whom we would make the greatest sacrifice and who moves our heart with the warmest love. He is the person or thing that if lost would leave us desolate. And so maybe you're not sacrificing to the church or God, but maybe you're sacrificing to your work or maybe you're sacrificing to some other substance. There's a million examples. John Calvin said the heart is an idol factory. We will come up with something to worship and to sacrifice to. The question is not... If you're sacrificing, the question is, is what you're sacrificing to worthy of your sacrifice? Is there anywhere in your life that maybe you're, you're pouring yourself out, but you're pouring yourself out to something that's not really worthy of your sacrifice? The scriptures are clear that God alone deserves my allegiance and sacrifice But the enemy hates that kind of self-sacrificial attitude. It reminds him of his arch enemy, the Lord Jesus. Uh, Plantinga said it this way, the son of God just does what he sees his father doing. He pours himself out because that's the way they do it in that family. So they criticize her, but, but Jesus himself actually comes to her defense. Look at verse 10. Aware of this, Jesus said to them, Why are you bothering this woman? She has done a beautiful, notice the word, a beautiful thing to me. The poor you will always have with you, but you will not always have me. Now, please don't misunderstand this verse to teach that uh, Jesus, for some reason, must not care about the poor. He does. Just a few chapters earlier in Matthew chapter 19, you'll recall he told a rich young ruler that he ought to sell everything he has and give it to the poor. Of course Jesus is concerned about the poor. This has nothing to do with the compassion or lack of compassion for the poor. The issue here is the priority of Jesus Christ and his mission and his place in our lives. Notice he says, you will not always have me. The poor will always be present, but I will not always be present, and he deserves first place one of my professors, Dr. Pentecost, used to sign his name on his books with this scripture verse, Colossians one18 b. So that in all things he might have the preeminence. God wants the first place in my life in everything I do. God says, Dave, I want the preference. I want the priority. I want the preeminence. I want to be first. Matthew twenty two. This is the first and greatest commandment: love the Lord your God. Matthew 6, seek ye first the kingdom of heaven. God says, honor me with the first fruits of your wealth. 2 Corinthians 8, 5, they gave themselves first to the Lord. Why does the Bible keep using that word first? It's because God doesn't want to be second in my life or third in my life. He deserves to be first in my life. St. Augustine said it well, Christ is not valued at all unless he is valued above all. That's why the Bible begins with those four words, in the beginning, God. That's not just the creation story. That is a recipe for following the Lord in your life. In the beginning, God. God first, God first, God first, God first. This is what this woman understood. and That's why Jesus says, she has done a beautiful thing to me. Uh, John Piper says this, it is a beautiful thing when the worth of Jesus And the love of his followers match. When the value of his perfections and the intensity of our affections correspond. This woman knew who was in the room. She knew he was worthy. Now, I've heard of anointing guests before, but this wasn't even her guest. This wasn't even her house. But she knew the king, uh, the Messiah in the Old Testament was anointed. This was the one that we've all been waiting for. She knew he was the one. And you know what else she knew? Look at verse 12. When she poured out this perfume on my body, Jesus says, she did it to prepare me for burial. Unlike the 12 disciples, this woman understood Jesus' mission. She knew he was going to die. This is very significant because three times in the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus has already predicted his death ahead of time. Once in chapter 16, once in chapter 17, and then the third time was in chapter 20. In chapter 16, perhaps you remember what happened. Jesus predicted that he was going to die, and Peter actually has the audacity to take him aside and rebuke him. What do you mean you're going to die? You're a king. Kings are not supposed to die. Kings are supposed to conquer their enemies, occupy their thrones, and rule. Just listen to me, the rock. I'll show you what to do. Jesus says, get thee behind me, Satan. Again, Jesus predicts his death in chapter 17. And it's like, at that time, they're not even paying attention. And then the final time is in chapter 20. And this is the worst possible response. Let me just remind you what happened. In chapter 20, in in verse 18, Jesus is talking, and he simply says, uh, we're going up to Jerusalem. And the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified. On the third day, he will be raised to life. This is the third and final time Jesus will predict his death in the Gospel of Matthew. And I want you to notice that in the very next verse, in the very next verse, something so utterly ridiculous happens that you can't miss it. It says, then, meaning right then, then the mother of Zebedee's sons came to Jesus with her sons and kneeling down asked a favor of him. What is it you want? He asked. She said, grant that one of these two sons of mine may sit at your right hand and the other at your left in your kingdom. Huh? Like, what? Yeah, it's too bad, you know, all the mocking and flogging and crucifixion. That sounds horrible. But we have a question we want to ask you. We have a favor we'd like you to grant. Really? Right here, right now? The timing is so inappropriate. It's unbelievable. Uh, Jesus reveals his sacrificial death. They are asking for positions of honor. They don't get it. At this point, Jesus, I think, shakes his head and says, you know, guys, I don't even think you know what you're asking. It's not even mine to grant. And then he gathers all of his disciples together, and says oh, let me just say something 25 you know that the rulers of the gentiles lord it over them and their high officials exercise authority over them in other words you know how this works in the world right there's a pyramid there's a there's a food chain there's a, there's a pecking order You know how those at the top have the power and the funds and the resources and they treat those below them however they want to treat them and they can use all kinds of strategies and tactics in order to lord their authority over those underneath of them. You you know how that is in the world, right? Yeah. Let me tell you something about my kingdom. My kingdom, listen... If you've drifted off a little bit today and you're not really paying attention, you could just come back. This is very important. What Jesus is about to say, the next four words are so important. You have to get this. Jesus says, you know how it is with the leaders of this world? And then I think he leans in and says these four words, not so with you. Amen. Not so with you. You know how it is out there, right? Yeah, not so with you. Amen. You know how it is out there in, in the business world? Yeah. Not so with you. You know how it is, life on the Serengeti plain. you know, survival of the fittest out there. Yeah, not so with you. This is so powerful and so transformative. Uh, Jesus actually says, instead, it's going to be like this. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must become your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be your slave, just as... Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve. And to give his life as a ransom for many. What an unbelievable verse. What an amazing Savior. What an amazing way to structure your life upside down. Here's how things are going to work in the kingdom of the Lord Jesus. You want to be great, you need to learn to put yourself last. You need to learn to sacrifice. But even after this very clear explanation, for the third time in a row in the Gospel of Matthew, they still do not get it. The disciples don't understand. They're still completely consumed, as we are, with self-interest. And as we are blinded by our own selfishness, they just don't understand. No one does, except, except this woman She gets it. She understands what Jesus is all about. She understood his mission. She understood that he was the anointed one who had come to die for the sins of the world. She got that, and for that reason, Jesus says what she did will always be remembered. Look at verse 13. Truly, I tell you, wherever this gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has done will always be told in memory of her. Now isn't that something, here we have this insignificant woman, anonymous, we're not even given her name, yet here we are today, this morning, talking about her. Why? Because she's the quintessential, authentic disciple of Jesus Christ in the Gospel of Matthew. She's the one who shows proper devotion, uh, the kind of devotion that all of Jesus' followers should show. She is our model disciple, which leads us to the final characteristic of her gift. Beautiful sacrifices are commended. Can we say that? Beautiful sacrifices are commended. So what about you? What would it look like for you to offer a sacrifice that will be commended? Let me encourage you to give your very best to the Lord Jesus Christ. You know why? Because I've done a lot of funerals. And when yours comes around and they wheel your casket right up here to the front, and then they open the mic up and they ask other people to share stuff about you, you know what they're gonna say? They're not gonna talk about your 401k. And they're not gonna talk about your baseball trivia knowledge or whatever other hobby you got. And they're not gonna talk about how many sales you got at work. They're gonna talk about the kind of sacrifices you made. They're going to talk about the kind of sacrifices you made for your family. They're going to talk about the kind of sacrifices you made for your friends. They're going to talk about the kind of sacrifices you made for your church. But those kind of sacrifices do not happen by accident. They happen intentionally. And so we have to make a decision to live a life of sacrifice. Would you be willing to pour yourself out for the Lord Jesus? What will your sacrifice be that is precious, pure, costly, broken and poured out for the Lord? What will you give that will be commended? Do you know what the word Christ means? It's not his last name. It's not like Joseph and Mary Christ and their son Jesus. Christ was a title. It meant anointed one. And I think... This perfume was a picture of the Lord Jesus Christ. Do you see it? The perfume was a gift that was precious, costly, broken, completely poured out. Just like him. Precious, costly, broken, completely poured out. It is no accident that just a few verses later in the gospel according to Matthew, Jesus gives us these familiar words. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. And that is why this woman, not those bumbling disciples, is the model disciple in the gospel of Matthew. She understood and responded to Jesus appropriately. C.T. Studd said it well. If Jesus Christ be God and died for me, then no sacrifice can be too great for me to make for him. Isaac Watts wrote about this in that song that we usually sing around this time of year. When I survey the wondrous cross on which the prince of glory died, my richest gain I count but loss and pour contempt on all my pride were the whole realm of nature mine, that would be an offering far too small for love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. If you don't remember anything else I say today, I want you to remember the next phrase. The whole point of this passage is this. The only appropriate response to Jesus is to give him your all. The only appropriate response to Jesus is to give him your all. Can we say that together? The only appropriate response to Jesus is to give him your all. Now the scene right here is over. And remember, Matthew is doing something literarily. And he's gonna shift back to the first scene and close it out. So pay attention. That would be a good place to end the sermon, but I have more to say. Okay, so verse 14 says this. Then one of the 12, the one called Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priest and asked, What are you willing to give me if I deliver him over to you? So they counted out for him 30 pieces of silver. From then on, Judas watched for an opportunity to hand him over. Judas, how much does it cost? Will you sell them out? In Exodus 31 and Zechariah 11, we're told 30 pieces of silver is mentioned as the price of a slave. Bach notes in his work, Jesus, according to Scripture, that if these pieces are Tyrian shekels, which is likely, then Judas sold Jesus for about five months' wages. They name their price. Judas sells out the Son of God for the price of a slave. Now, I want you to notice what Matthew is doing here because he's drawing a contrast. The point Matthew is making is to show us the incredible difference here. On the one hand, we have this woman who gave everything to Jesus. On the other hand, we have Judas who asks, What are you willing to give me? See? On the one hand, she handed over what she had to Jesus. On the other hand, Judas handed over Jesus to increase what he had for himself. On the one hand, hers was a beautiful sacrifice, an act of incredible devotion. On the other hand, his was an act of incredible disloyalty and deplorable self-centeredness. And it's in the contrast that we find the lesson for us. And Matthew is asking you and me that question, which one will you be like? Will you always be asking what's in it for me? Or will you be like this woman and ask, what do I have that I can give to Christ? That's the question. Let me invite the worship team to come up, and as they do, let me close with that story with which I began. How much does it cost, they asked Mariana Slocum so many years ago. After her missionary work, she retired and moved to Dallas, Texas. And at 91 years old, my good friend Craig met her and asked her some questions. And I said, what was it like? He said, it was pretty amazing. I asked her this question. Tell me about all the sacrifices you made on the mission field. And this was her response. She said, Craig, I never considered any of it a sacrifice, but a privilege and a joy. To see people come out of darkness and witchcraft and the fear of the devil and to be delivered into the marvelous light of Jesus, what more could you ask for? And here, friends, we find a great paradox. Jesus has taught us this paradox before. When we make what seems to us like such a big sacrifice, when it is given to Christ, it becomes a source of incredible joy. When we pour ourselves out to the Lord, we become blessed beyond anything we could ever imagine. If we want to save our lives, we must learn to lose it. If we want to be first, we must learn to be last. If we want to be great, we must learn to be the servant of all. If you want to live a life of purpose and significance, then you must learn to pour yourself out as a beautiful sacrifice to the Lord Jesus. Amen? Can we pray? Oh, Heavenly Father, I thank you for preserving this story, for preserving this whole gospel, and and forgive us, forgive me, for focusing so much on myself. Forgive us for focusing on ourselves and turn our attention, especially this week, toward what matters and turn our attention toward you. Help us to let go. Help us to surrender what we have into your hands. Help us to say from our hearts, all to Jesus I surrender. All to him I freely give. I surrender all. I surrender all. All to thee, my blessed Savior. I surrender all. We pray this for Christ's sake and for his reputation. Amen. Can we stand?